Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Do you think we have enough information? Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> enough information to respond to the proclamation of the gospel. I mean, think about when you might have come to faith. How much did you know about Jesus? How much did you know about his death and resurrection? What loose ends did you still have to tie up and investigate? If you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, why not? What do you still need to know or to investigate? I mean, here, what Deacon Text just read for us, we get this fascinating comment from the Gospel of John's author. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. It's interesting. This has been purposefully edited to give us just the right amount of information we need so that we can believe in Jesus. This is not the director's cut. This is not everything. This is not exhaustive. It's just the right amount of information, according to John's author, to help us weigh the claims of Christianity, the claims of Jesus. And the last thing John wants us to consider before he kind of says, here's why I wrote this book, well, the objections of Thomas that we have here in John 20. Um, John 20 has Thomas saying, as he considers the resurrection, whoa, 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 whoa. Unless I see, unless I touch. Um, by the way, he's not saying he's completely unwilling. <laughs> he's hesitant. He needs more information um, is what he says in John 20. The Gospel of John presents this incredible encounter between uh, Jesus and Thomas as the final uh, puzzle piece, the final thing to consider as you consider the claims of Jesus. John's Gospel doesn't tell us more of the signs Jesus did because he has already given us more than enough to believe. The revelation is fully sufficient. And I would say we may think like Thomas that we need more. More information, more proof. We have everything we need here to believe. Maybe not to answer all of our questions. Maybe not everything we pondered, but to have faith. To know who Jesus is and to receive life in his name. After all, the gospel uh, is not here just as mere information. To satisfy our curiosity, it's an invitation to know and to follow the risen one that John presents for us. Um, as you might guess, you're here at St. Thomas Anglican Church. Uh, St. Thomas is one of my favorite <laughs> characters in the Bible. I love this story of this encounter. That's partly why our church is named after uh, this follower of Jesus. Um, we're going to focus our attention this morning on the center section of our assigned passage, the encounter with Thomas uh, and Jesus and you're going to see two sides of one man. And those two sides tell a story of uh, faith and conversion. They tell a story of doubt, doubting Thomas to St. Thomas the Apostle. So first, doubting Thomas. Um, the first time we meet Thomas in the Gospels, 
Um, he's just listed. He's one of the 12. And we learn that he has a twin. The first words that Thomas speaks uh, in the Gospels are recorded in John chapter 11. He lets Jesus know that he's willing to go and die with him. Interesting. Thomas is someone who is all in throughout the gospel story. In John 14, Jesus is inviting his closest friends to follow him. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Always with questions, good questions. And Jesus replies, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas is willing to follow he wants a little more information, wants his questions answered. Um, I don't think he's hesitant. He's far from fearful. He is honestly, consistently confused, <laughs> willing to follow, needing clarity, asking questions. That's why we like him, because we can relate to Thomas, can't we? Honestly, consistently confused, willing to follow, but needing some clarity, asking questions. And I think one of my favorite things about Thomas as we see him in the scriptures is Thomas doesn't ask questions just for the sake of asking questions. He's not a squeaky wheel. He's not trying to be contrarian. I think Thomas asks questions because he thinks there are answers and he wants to know them. The real answers, not the easy answers. And he believes they are there to be found and he's figured out who to ask. Jesus. So here we are in John 20. The Lord Jesus has been crucified, buried in a borrowed tomb, and then burst forth in glory. We said last week on Easter Sunday, through his resurrection, something incredible happened. Everything that went into the tomb came out of the tomb, yet it was changed. It was glorified. It was transfigured again, made more glorious, uh, more beautiful. That language struggles to clarify what happened. You probably have questions, like Thomas. What in the world? Who is this Jesus? What form does he have? How did God do this? Eugene Peterson, uh, who's now uh, with the Lord, has said the resurrection is not available for our use. It's not practical. It is exclusively God's operation. I mean, how many sermons have you heard where um, you go through a passage of wisdom or a story and you go, here are the three takeaways you can apply in your life. Friends, there's not three takeaways for how you raise someone from the dead. This is an act of God. This is a supernatural work of the Lord. Jesus is reunited with his disciples. But John says there's one problem. We don't know why, but verse 24 says Thomas wasn't with the other disciples when Jesus appears to them. Now, they tell him, they're not trying to keep a secret. Hey, we've seen the Lord. Thomas says, "Woo! I need more clarity. I need more clarity. Unless I, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. He's got questions. He's not satisfied with the account they've given him. Um, and I resonate with this. Um, you may not uh, know this, but when I was growing up, 
um, I was a nightmare for my Sunday school teachers because I had questions. <laughs> and I thought there were answers. And I thought there were better answers than what I was being given. And those questions were not welcomed. I had lots of questions. And usually I was shushed and told, have more faith. Or people rushed to give me a quick Sunday school answer to make sure I was okay. You know, I think they were worried that in my questions I was saying that I didn't want to be a Christian. But really I was asking questions to find answers. And I thought, surely this is where to find answers. Where else would you ask questions? I mean, it might be messy. It might take time. It might not be the answers that I wanted, but I was pretty sure there were answers out there. Now, I do love what happens next. <laughs> Thomas lays down his gauntlet, his challenge to the Lord. <laughs> and then we get a timestamp. Eight days later. Can you imagine the questions in those eight days, the conversations in those eight days? It's intriguing to me that Jesus is never in a hurry. He lets Thomas sit. He lets him wait. He lets him rest. He lets him stew. Eight days later, there's no anxious rush to answer Thomas's questions or his doubts. You don't get the sense that the disciples pull him aside and Peter's like, hey, I'm in charge now, buddy. Um, you need to get in line. We now believe in the resurrection. <laughs> they don't shush him. They don't try to make sure he's okay. No, he's with them for eight days. They allow him the grace of community. They extend patience until the key encounter with the risen Jesus. And it occurs to me that so often our goal is for people to agree with our answers. But the priority is that they, like Thomas, would encounter the risen Christ. That's how you go from doubting Thomas to St. Thomas the Apostle. Because that's what we see in verses 26 through 28. John writes that Jesus came and stood among them, even though the doors were locked. Again, you might have questions about this resurrection body that goes through doors. Bishop N.T. Wright says we should coin a new word here, transphysical. He even tells us where in the Oxford English Dictionary we could put it. What page number? He's physical, but it's more than. It's glorified. It's different. It's changed. But once he arrives in their midst, Jesus proclaims peace to them. Shalom, wholeness, promise, fullness. Proclaims peace. And then he singles out Thomas, verse 27. Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus meets Thomas's doubts. He meets his questions uh, with grace. He meets his questions with answers. Most importantly, he met his question with the greatest answer we could have himself, the risen Lord Jesus. Jesus says, in essence, come to me, bring all of your doubts, all of your questions. If that's what you need, put your hand in 
my side, finger in my hands. He's available. He's present. He's drawn near and come near to Thomas. And it's interesting. um, One scholar has pointed out that he meets Thomas' requirements to the letter. Every one of his, unless I, he's like, okay. And he says, should a Lord be so accommodating? But isn't this accommodation almost the wonder of Jesus' entire incarnation, that he would humble himself to come among us? Isn't that the wonder of his cross, that he would humble himself even to the point of death? Isn't that the wonder of his resurrection, that he would say, if you need faith, if you need verification, touch. The very word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us says, if that's what you need, here I am. He honors the honest doubt of Thomas. He honors the real question Thomas has. And unlike the many uh, incredible artistic renderings of this scene, we, we use one from Caravaggio. Um, you know what all of those pictures have? They have Thomas touching. You know what John doesn't have? Thomas touching. He immediately exclaims, my Lord and my God. What he thought he needed, he didn't need after all. Because Jesus was sufficient. The risen Lord answered those questions. And in verse 29, I think with a twinkle in his eye, Jesus says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Um, We just got a cameo in the Gospel of John. Beautiful. Beautiful. Or as Hebrews 11 puts it, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and doubt-filled Thomas Um, I'm going to add this. I think he hits his knees. Cries out, my Lord and my God. Maybe the greatest confession of faith we have seen so far. My Lord and my God. St. Gregory the Great in the 6th century wrote, it was not an accident that this particular disciple was not present. The divine mercy ordained that a doubting disciple should by feeling in his master the wounds of the flesh heal in us the wounds of unbelief. The unbelief of Thomas is more profitable to our faith than the belief of the other disciples. For the touch by which he is brought to believe confirms our minds in belief beyond all question. Jesus doesn't chastise Thomas. He meets him with grace and answers. The community of Thomas's friends were willing to wait patiently so that Thomas could and would encounter the risen Jesus, not their pat answers. See, they knew Jesus had risen from the dead. They were secure that Jesus could make himself known and make himself known to their friend because Jesus was alive. They didn't have to be anxious about anything. And he could meet You and he can meet me, he can meet our friend and family today like he met Thomas. Now, what's interesting, as I consider Thomas, is that the doubts of Thomas were perfectly understandable. 
after all, we said last week, dead people tend to stay dead. However, that doesn't appear to be the main barrier to faith right now. Uh, Just last month, Barna Research released some recent findings, surveys they had done about the top reasons that people question and doubt Christianity. Um, There were 14 reasons they gave, 14 main reasons people questioned or doubted Christianity, 14. Do you know where the resurrection of Jesus ranked on that list? Fourteenth, dead last. For the New Testament, the resurrection is the ultimate deal breaker. But in recent studies, it barely made the list. Do you know what the top reasons were for questioning Christianity? Not Jesus, not his death, not his resurrection. Us, the church. And us, the pain of the lives that we have led. The top two reasons. Past experience with a religious institution, number one on the list. Second, the hypocrisy of religious people. People have pain. People have trauma. People have disillusionment. People have been injured by the body of Christ. The next cluster of objections, human suffering, unanswered prayer, unanswered questions. People's lives have been painful, and they say, Lord, where are you? And where have you been? Personal pain, general doubt. You see, most objections to the Christian faith, I think, are rooted far more in pain than rational objection. It's rooted in suffering. It's rooted in trauma. It's rooted in abuse. And if you're talking to someone who is not following Jesus and they present their objections, it's very likely that they are papering over the actual pain they've experienced. Um, It's not that those other objections are invalid, but they usually aren't the crux of the issue. Usually it's the disappointment. It's the pain, it's the betrayal, it's the trauma, the abuse, the suffering. And I think in John 20, Jesus gives an answer to those as well, those deeper hurts. Not exhaustive explanation, but sufficient answer. What did Thomas want to see and touch? His wounds, the wounds of Jesus. Last week, we considered the revelation of the cross and the empty tomb. Next Sunday, we'll look at how Jesus makes himself known to us in word and sacrament. Today, we reflect on the witness of his wounds. His wounds. Thomas recognizes the Lord, his friend, by his wounds. Because Jesus has been changed. He's gone through something. He has scars. Does that ever strike you as odd? That the risen Jesus, perfectly restored, perfectly renewed, made glorious and beautiful, has wounds? Scars? These badges of love, this 
eternal reminder of pain and suffering and betrayal and sin and injustice and trauma. Jesus says, look at these. He doesn't meet our pain with dismissal or shame or condemnation. He meets it with empathy and invitation. The kind of understanding that can only come from tragic experience. The risen one who still bears in his flesh the price of our redemption. He meets us with himself. I love the idea that before we start the Lenten season, uh, we go with Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, we see the Lord for who he truly is. We see his glory. We see his beauty. We see him changed. We see him revealed. Friends, his wounds have been transfigured. These badges of pain and sin and injustice and suffering, all the things that keep people from following Jesus have been transfigured in the risen Lord. And so there's a resurrection hope that can look at the worst thing that ever happened to Jesus that now has been transfigured to glorify God and go, all the worst things that have happened to me, I might not be able to explain them, I might not like that they have happened, but what would it be like to gaze upon the transfigured, glorified wounds of the risen one and say, Lord, I trust that you can bring good out of this. That you can take wounds that seem like they would never heal and transfigure them into something glorious and beautiful. Um, there's a song that we often sing uh, called Eternal Weight of Glory. Um, if this wasn't the second Sunday of Easter, we probably would have planned ahead and sung it. But here's what it says in the chorus. All our pains will be transfigured like the scars of Christ our Lord. We will see the weight of glory in our broken years restored. There is beauty, there is answer, there is wonder, there is glory in the transfigured wounds that Thomas said, that's what I want to see. And when he sees those wounds, he says, my Lord and my God. There's an old prayer in the Ignatian tradition of our Roman Catholic friends called the Anima Christi. And there's a prayer in that it says, within thy wounds hide me. From the enemy defend me. In the hour of death call me that I may come to you, that I may be with you, that I may worship you for eternity. What's it mean to bring our questions and doubts and pain and hide them in the wounds of our Lord. Trusting that he can transfigure them. Trusting that our deepest hurts and pains and doubts and suffering can be healed. The wounds of Jesus. I'll close with this. This is Isaiah 53. Looking ahead at our Lord's passion, here's the commentary Isaiah gives. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Our pain, our suffering, the abuse we've suffered, the trauma, whatever it is, the pain of our unbelief can be healed by the wounds of Christ. In his name.
Amen.